Social media and the internet have given us a wealth of colorful new language. So maybe recently you've taken a selfie, or maybe you read something that made you LOL, laugh out loud. Surely the meaning of the word friend has been completely transformed. But of course, there are much darker terms that have also been added to our vocabulary. One of them is revenge porn, or to give it its proper name, the non-consensual sharing of sexual images online. This is BBC Trending, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at social media and online culture. I'm Mike Wendling. Just a few years ago, if you were a victim of so-called revenge porn, you had little recourse. Mainstream social networks have rules against sexual content, but they still could be easily used to spread links from less salubrious websites. Laws against revenge porn were almost unheard of. But that has changed, and we're in the middle of a broad cultural shift when it comes to sharing sex pics and videos online. One of the people driving that change is Carrie Goldberg. She's a lawyer in New York, and I recently stopped by her office. It's in a high-rise building that has an awesome view of the Brooklyn Bridge. Carrie Goldberg's law firm is unique. It is dedicated to helping people who are the victims of non-consensual sharing of sexual images. So, as you can imagine, our conversation was at times explicit. Kerry told me about the start of her career when she was working in a job trying to get restitution for Holocaust victims. That led her to law school. But it was one incident with an ex-boyfriend which changed the course of her life. After law school, I had a string of jobs working for victims, um, for people who were being evicted from their homes unnecessarily, for people who'd been deemed, deemed incapacitated. And then in 2013... I found myself a victim. I had ended a relationship with a controlling person, and then he retaliated against me. Among other things, he threatened to release all these videos and and naked pictures of me, basically because I had ended the relationship. And even though I was a lawyer at the time, I had no idea what to do. And I tried to get a restraining order, and the judge told me that even though he could stop this person from contacting and harassing me, I had a First Amendment problem. My ex could possibly still legally be able to, to distribute these images. And So you couldn't do anything in that situation? Right. So when I finally got to the other side of my ordeal and I got my restraining order, I then decided to quit my job and to become the lawyer that I needed when I was going through hell. I started my law firm to become that for other people. This was back in 2013. And back then, there were just a couple states that had any sort of legislation relating to the non-consensual distribution of intimate images and videos. And over the last, I guess, five years now, we have, I think, 41 states plus Washington, D.C. that criminalize it. If you approach a case, what's your desired outcome? Is it to put criminal charges against people who are doing this, to get pictures taken down? What's kind of the thing that you set out to do first? So when I approach a case, my marching orders are really determined by my client and what my client needs. So sometimes my client comes to me, and their only interest is to get that the F off the Internet. 
And other times I have a client who's being harassed and stalked, and it's about making that person stop. Sometimes it's about getting that person to stop, and the only way to do it that's going to be safe is to get that person thrown in jail. It's also quite common for me to go after an offender for money, particularly if we have somebody who is a sexual predator, who's powerful and wealthy. The threat to their wallet is going to be a real motivating thing. There's a lot of judgment, I think, against women who are seeking financial restitution for something they've suffered. Right now, we live in a society where it's like, if you sue somebody who's raped you, then you're, you're a gold digger, or you're a liar, or you're a slut, or you're a whore, or you're a pawn in a movement, or that you're part of a, a witch hunt or a lynch mob. But the thing is that in any other sort of case, if you've been wronged, if you trip and fall, if you've been hit by a car, we expect the victims to, to be seeking financial justice. And yet, in cases where there's actually intentional and malicious motivation, we think like, oh, well, there's something wrong with, with the victim who, who ought to be paid for her suffering. And I really got that perspective you know, from working with victims of Nazi persecution and Holocaust, where I saw, like, no, if you've been injured, then somebody has to pay. It's never going to be enough. There's no way to undo it, but, like, somebody has to pay. Tell me about the people who are your clients. Is there a typical victim who comes to you? They run the gamut. They're, my clients are between the ages of 13, and my oldest one is 81. They're every gender. They're every gender identity. They're gay, they're straight, they're bi, they're trans, they're every religion. They're, I've you know, had people on food stamps. I've had people who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars as clients. Every race. What's interesting, though, is that the offenders are the ones who are the same. It's not so much about their demographic as it is about their behavior. And we've actually created a taxonomy here of the offenders, and we've got four main types, like psychos, pervs, and trolls. Assholes, for instance, are offenders who usually, they're jilted. They're aggressing against a loss, usually at the end of a relationship. And they do an act. They do something impulsive and reckless and vindictive. You take that a step further and you've got the psycho, the person who also is usually aggressing against somebody after they've felt slighted, but they can't stop. So they engage in all-out warfare. They will harass and stalk and threaten, and usually that can't end without them getting arrested. And we've had cases where the conclusion has been the offender impersonating our client and sending bomb threats to Jewish community centers all over the world. We've had them impersonate our client and send child pornography in her name to hundreds of people. I had a case where a man impersonated our client and made it look like she was sending people to rape his wife. And my client was sent to jail for 88 days before she was exonerated. Uh, the troll behavior, that's, that's usually somebody who's aggressing anonymously on the internet. And then the perv behavior is the type of person who's, this is the sex crime, the, the person who's um, aggressing for purposes of sexual gratification or control. I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about how social media and the internet, the availability of 
anonymity or the ease of communication mm-hmm. has maybe caused these types of cases to become maybe more common than they might have been in well, the past? I think, I think the internet and, and tech has increased the frequency of these types of cases, but it's also amplified the ability of the offender to reach a greater volume of people. So the offender can use social media and the web to reach much further. What you know before would have been, oh, I want to I post porn of my girlfriend you'd have to actually have the photographs and then take them to get developed. But now we all walk around with little photo studios, and you can post something on Pornhub, and 24 hours later, it can have a million views. And you can then you know, send links of that to everybody in the LinkedIn fields of the, the victims, and, and the reach can be quite extraordinary. And then on top of that, we also have the search engine issue, which means basically if you are the victim of aggression on the Internet and it goes viral and is associated with your name, as it often is, that can become inescapable. Your Google results can then become populated with links to the revenge porn. It used to be that if if something horrible happened to us, that we could move to a different community. But now there's no escaping our reputation if something happens to it, if somebody else takes control of it. Tell me how the big tech companies, big social media companies, Facebook, Google, and I guess the big pornography companies, you mentioned Pornhub, for example, how have they been responding to this? Do you think their response has been adequate? It's complicated. They're part of the problem of why online harassment and things like revenge porn, sextortion have been able to happen. But also, you know, there have been times when they've been part of the solution. In 2015, when they started banning um, non-consensual porn on their platforms, that helped. Uh, Facebook has created photo hashing software that helps with flagging child pornography and, and also revenge porn. That's helped. But then you have Google, who for five years, we've had a non-consensual porn bill that's being considered for legislation in Albany, New York, and... The state capital of New York. Yes. It's a statewide bill. Yes, exactly. And finally, our lawmakers were voting on it, and it was the final day of legislation, and Google did something, and we still don't know what they did, but no vote was held because of some action that Google took. I mean, we have a case right now against Grindr, where we sued Grindr because their product was used as a weapon against our client. Our client's boyfriend was impersonating him on Grindr, and over a thousand people physically came to our client's home and to his job at the restaurant where he worked in New York to have sex with him. The guy would impersonate our client and direct message with people and say that he had rape fantasies and he wanted to play them out, and this is where I live. And then he would give the home address of our client. He would say that he had drugs to share and so on and so forth. Our client reported this to the police many times. He got an order of protection against the ex, and nothing helped. The guy kept doing this. I mean, sometimes 23 people would come in a single day. This was over the course of about four months before my firm got involved. And we then immediately were like, we have to stop. I'm Grindr is the one who has to stop this. If an order of protection isn't stopping your ex, if the police can't stop him, if there's no prosecution of him, who's the one entity that has control? It's the owner of the app. 
And so we got in touch with Grindr and said, hey, you know, like, you got to exclude this, this user. And they ignored us, <laughs> just as they had ignored him. And so we got a restraining order, actually, against Grindr. It was a pretty, like, uh, renegade legal uh, stunt to do, but we got a restraining order against Grindr, demanding that they exclude this particular user and who was destroying our client's life. I mean, he was destroying Matthew's peace and his right to be left alone. It sounds like an astonishing story. Uh, oh, it, it, People it, listening on the radio won't see, but my jaw so, is almost on the floor. Yeah, your, your jaw is on the floor. But <laughs> um, So we finally got Grinder's attention, and their lawyers in court said, hey, we're sorry, but our client, they can't control who uses its product. And we said, that's insane. You have a product that, I mean, its main function is to facilitate offline sexual encounters, and you built it without thinking about the fact that it will sometimes be used by stalkers and rapists, and you have no ability to track who's going to use it? That is really irresponsible. One of my earliest cases was a 13-year-old from Brooklyn had been sexually assaulted outside of her school by a peer, and he videoed it, and then that video went viral all around her school and the other schools nearby. Rather than helping her, the principal told her that she needed to leave, brought her mom in. Her mom didn't speak any English, um, but there was a translator, and said that your daughter is a distraction here at school. We then brought a case against the New York City Department of Education. That case is still pending. But we have another case where we got the biggest settlement to date against the New York City Department of Education for our client who was sexually assaulted in a stairwell by a group of boys. And then when she reported it, she was suspended. And we got her almost a million dollars in restitution for that case. That was a really big victory. But again, it doesn't undo the, the hell that she faced. I mean, there's no kind of way that story makes sense except that it's true. Some of your clients will have initially shared pictures consensually, which later are posted non-consensually. And mm-hmm. you must hear it from some people who say, oh, well, you know, if people didn't share those photos, then there would be mm-hmm. no need for somebody like you. And what's your response when you hear arguments like oh, that? Oh, I think it's just kind of brain dead at this point. I mean, the, the whole argument, like, what did you expect would happen or why share naked pictures in the first place? It's kind of simple-minded. I mean, we are all so attached to our technology and we use it to date, we use it to shop, we use it to order food. Um, So of course it's going to be used in our sexuality. So, you know, I think the shame really needs to shift in these scenarios where we're judging the people who are distributing it without consent rather than the people who trusted their partner as the recipient. There's another argument that says that if we were all more comfortable with nudity or sexual activity, then this stuff wouldn't be considered shaming and thus the need to get it deleted or whatever action you or clients want to take would would not be necessary. I know somebody who calls that argument it's only revenge porn if you care, which is totally true. I think that there are a lot of people that if their nude images were to wind up published or on a jumbotron at Yankee Stadium, 
they wouldn't care. But I think what we have to honor is consent, and we have to honor the right to privacy. And those are both things that I personally still um, think are really important basic human rights. I mean, there's something that every single one of us wouldn't want the world to know. For some of us, that's going to be a naked picture. For others, it's going to be something that they did or thought that they had or for a proclivity. But we have to remember that when we're talking about like, the destruction of privacy, that like, do you really want all of yourself exposed? Since you started your work in this area, there has, of course, been a huge movement that has to do with the idea of consent. It's Me Too. How is your work, or how do you see your work being a part of that movement? So the Me Too movement has really changed things. I started my firm years before that, and we were dealing with sexual assault and sexual harassment and sexual violence. And suddenly in 2017, in October of 2017, everything changed, where suddenly there was actually, you know, communication and conversation and dialogue about these things that it felt like no one had wanted to talk to me about before and that nobody thought was okay to really be pressing the criminal justice system and the civil justice system about. And so it was nice in the sense that, like, I had, you know, there was so much more company and my clients now had a community of other people and we were really talking about it. And it's become more accepted to be seeking redress. You and your colleagues must spend a lot of time watching violent stuff online, threats, this kind of stuff. And I'm guessing that you probably also get threats from perpetrators or just people who are nasty. I'm wondering how you deal with all this stuff because it sounds like quite a stressful job. In my 20s, I worked with Holocaust survivors and Nazi victims. I don't think anything will be as stressful as that. My clients and my work bring me so much joy. And it's true that they, they come to our firm and they're in the middle of their biggest storm of hell and their biggest misery. And it seems like that would be very dark, but it's actually really joyful to have somebody come to you for help and know what to do. It's empowering to be able to, to take... I mean, because I started this firm when I was still in a place of deep pain. And this firm has been what's healed me. And being able to surround myself with colleagues who are so talented and to be able to, to actually have built something that the clients, like the very people that I dreamt of being able to help, are now coming here and finding us. And we're able to get them the things that I wish I'd been able to have when I was in their shoes. It's... I mean, it's, it's um, the best life I could possibly imagine for myself. I, I just have one more question. Do you ever have hope that you can mostly or even entirely eliminate revenge porn? Like, do you ever have hope that you could put yourself out of business? Oh, yeah. I mean, the goal is always to put myself out of business. The thing is that um, there are always going to be psychos, assholes, pervs, and trolls. I mean, I, I have seen a decrease in non-consensual pornography since so much of tech banned it and, and we have criminal laws. But there are just new ways that people aggress. I mean, I would love to put myself out of business, but until we actually find ourselves in a civilization where people are civilized, I don't see that happening, sadly. 
Kerry Goldberg, who started a legal firm to fight against revenge porn. We contacted some of the companies Kerry had lawsuits and allegations against, which she talked about in that interview. Grinder gave us a statement. They said that in the case of the ex-boyfriend who was stalked, they, quote, worked closely with law enforcement and took extensive steps to delete and ban fraudulent accounts, including investigating hundreds of email addresses, profile names and accounts, conducting voluntary daily searches, and searching account profile contents for any potential reference of the physical addresses, phone numbers, and other relevant information. They also said that any statement or implication that Grindr did, quote, nothing is simply false. We also contacted Google about their efforts to quash legislation in New York State. They told us, we support laws that crack down on revenge porn. In New York, we are part of a coalition of organizations currently working with lawmakers to place responsibility squarely on the bad actors that post it. In 2015, we led the industry on requests to remove links to web pages that contain sexually explicit images shared without consent from our search results. That's it this week for the BBC Trending Podcast. My thanks to Kerry Goldberg and to the rest of our team, particularly our audio engineers, Nigel Appleton and Rod Farker, and our production coordinator, Caroline Bessemer. You can use our social media outlets to get in touch. You can even email me with your story tips. Michael.Wendling, W-E-N-D-L-I-N-G, at bbc.co.uk. Next week, we'll hear from a grieving mother in Germany, and find out how her daughter's murder became a rallying cry for the far right online. And one more thing before we go, here's a new podcast telling a story that had a huge impact on the world we live in today. A brand new podcast drama from the BBC World Service, telling the story of the 1979 Iranian Revolution. I ask you to dump tools in your workplace. I must rule, not reign this nation. Refuse your job. You've noticed the screaming. Cease your studies. We will plant flowers in their gun barrels. Close your store. They say the city's on fire. We get to put it out. Disobey every day and every night. Total control of the state, even of the souls of his people. Rise and sacrifice your blood. If we kill them, sir, open fire. Fall of the Shah. Find it wherever you found this podcast. Check it out. And we'll be back in your feed soon with more stories from the underbelly of the online world.